Absolutely, because what you do is, it's again, it's the race to nowhere. So mm -hmm. the same thing happened with me. I mean, I had very good grades, all the accolades, and what I, what I, in, in reflection, what I understand is that I realized, okay, well, I did all those things and that didn't work. That didn't bring me fulfillment or joy or happiness. So I'm going to flip the, I'm going to flip this on its back. So I'm going to go full social, full party, slacker and, and see those kids seem like they're having a great time. You know, like those kids seem happy. Um, let's go. Hi, my name is Shlomo Solson, the host of the Teenage Impact Podcast, where we share stories, tips, and specific strategies on how you as a teenager can overcome any struggles in your life. I've interviewed over 70 people right now, nearly 80 people on this one question on how they were able to overcome adversity and create their own definition of success. Before I actually go into the interview itself, I want to talk about my new book that I released um, almost two months ago called Never Fight Alone. It's a compilation of 51 interviews that of people who have had some kind of story they talk about their struggles, how they're able to overcome them. And it's a book on how you can improve your mental health. So if you haven't checked it out yet, go ahead, check it out. It's the link in the description. Today's podcast guest is Daniel Peterson. So Daniel, he's the author of two books, The Assertive Parent, which is a roadmap for building autonomy and resilience for teenagers, and he just recently came out with another book, Scar Recover, which is a communication guide for addressing mental health in school. He's worked in secondary education for about 17 years, first as an English teacher, then a high school assistant principal and a therapeutic director. He currently serves on the board of directors for the Imagine Foundation, an organization committed to assisting and empowering struggling young people. But most importantly, he's a family man and a really good guy. So give it up for Daniel Peterson. How's it going, man? Good, how are you? I'm amazing, you're tuning in from California, right? That's right, I'm here in Newport Beach, California. I'm jealous. Um, yeah, it's about 75 degrees and sunny today. I could go for some fall weather, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me. Not a problem. Daniel, I want to start off with, first of all, what your story was when you were younger. What got you into addressing mental health for teens? Now, what were some of your struggles like when you were younger? Yeah, I mean, I'll start with a little bit about what I do now. I'm, I'm the therapeutic, uh, I'm the director of education for two therapeutic schools, mm -hmm. one for high school students and one for college students. Um, in addition to that, I, I work with kids all over the country and do kind of educational crisis management. So when the wheels fall off the wagon and you're not sure the school's not a good fit for you or you're struggling with your mental health or your sobriety and you're not sure what to do, I work with teenagers and families to come up with customized solutions for those problems. Basically like a hospitalist does in a hospital, connecting them with resources based on their personality, their budget, their needs. So where I am now and, and where I started are very different. Um, I, 
before I did this four years ago, I quit my job uh, as an assistant principal when my best friend um, at work died by suicide. And it was very public. It was very traumatic. And I thought I was going to be a high school principal of a big high school. I was the assistant principal of a big high school. um, And I had been doing that for 14 years, but that, that trauma of that, of that suicide really took it all out of me. And maybe understand that I needed to do something different with my life or maximize my own potential, which is very similar to how I felt in high school. I grew up in a rural town with limited resources, limited diversity, and I had mental health issues, depression and anxiety for my whole life. Um, But I never knew what to call them. I didn't know what they were. I just knew that I felt different. And so that led to a very isolative experience for me, thinking if I could just be like other people, I would feel happy like other people because I didn't understand the resources or the tools or the time left ahead of me to to make changes and to heal and to really do what I whatever I want now, owning my own company and, and consulting for these other schools. Uh, you know, I am a CEO of a, a small company that's done really well. Um, But if you had asked me in high school, if I could see that far ahead, I would have said no. And if you could ask me in 2016, if I thought I would have the autonomy and financial freedom that I have now, I would have said no. Mm -hmm. So I guess one day at a time is really the mantra that I follow. Mm -hmm. Now, you said you went through depression, anxiety, you didn't know what to call it. Why do you think you were going through those feelings? I, th- I mean, honestly, I think it's chemical and I think it's genetic. I, I don't, if you look at, if you line up all of the metrics of my life um, in terms of what I had uh, and access to, you know, like food on the table and stable home and married parents and good relationships with siblings, a lot of it was just inherently genetic in my opinion, um, because it's still something I suffer from. I'm still, you know, on medication for depression and anxiety. It's not something I still go to therapy. I still do all of the things that I, that I learned to do, but I didn't have any of those tools. So what happened to me is that when mental health disorders are left untreated, they manifest in, in strange behaviors. And obviously your peers can see a difference in you than them. And so then it led to bullying or just sort of being ostracized from the, the greater school community which idle time and isolation do, do not pair well with mental health. Mm-hmm. When you started noticing the depression and anxiety, what did you start doing? Well, it wasn't, I didn't start taking any action steps until I was in college, right? So in high school, I largely tried to outrun it. And I, I behaved that way for a long time, uh, even in college and, and through college and into my early 20s thinking if I just get a 4.0, I won't feel depressed. Or, you know, if I'm student body president, I won't be depressed. Or if I'm a varsity athlete, I won't be depressed. Um, If I'm in a fraternity, I won't be depressed. So all these, I tried to outrun it with metrics and optics, basically. It was a futile attempt. It did not work well. And it wasn't until I really, you know, stopped, dropped and rolled, like as if I were on fire and made big sweeping changes in my life that, that I began to feel better. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you say that because in, when I speak at schools, I like to use this analogy. When there's, a, when there's a cake in front of you, right? 
and there's candles, people telling you to blow out the candles and make a wish. We make all these different wishes come true. When I'll have money, I'll be happy. When I graduate, I'll be happy. When I become popular, I'll be happy. We make all these wishes and we constantly are making wishes, thinking those things can make us happy. But in reality, it's, it's just an excuse to go after those things just so you can feel just a little bit of happiness at that moment. Not saying we shouldn't make goals, not say we shouldn't make wishes and aspirations, but making those wishes shouldn't stop you or come in the way of truly being happy in the present and being happy in the moment. Right. And wherever you go, there you are. Right. So, I mean, some of my clients that I work with have unlimited resources. You know, the parents are CEOs of motion picture companies and fortune 500 companies. They have unlimited access to, to resources and money and private planes and the whole thing. Mental health doesn't care about any of that. Right. It's not interested. It's also important to understand that, you know, you're not going to feel happy all the time. Like even people who feel well, who have no, you know, mental imbalance or mental health disorder have seasons or periods or moments in their life where they're not happy. So I think wellness is a destination. It's not a destination. It's a process, right? Like, so we can't chase it thinking that if we, if we get this, we're going to feel this way because they're the two, while they have a relationship, they're not connected directly. Mm-hmm. Now, besides uh, medication and therapy, what are some ways to manage your anxiety and depression? Well, for me, um, exercise is, a, is an important way. Sleep, having healthy sleep, um, staying off social media as, you know, in a healthy, with a healthy way. Like it's not the last thing I look at before I go to sleep. And it's not the first thing I look at when I wake up sobriety. I'm six years sober, so I don't use it. Thank you. So I don't use any self-medication, um, which was a, a big, you know, deficit for me to conquer. Um, but it was certainly something I see with teenagers constantly is, you know, using marijuana, alcohol, benzos like Xanax, um, vape even to pacify anxious thoughts or tendencies or depressive moods. Um, when in fact, research will tell you quite unequivocally that those very substances create a bitter cycle of rebound anxiety and rebound depression and can damage the brain to places that would not be so damaged, uh, void of those substances. So those are some of the tools that I use. Mm-hmm. How did you start educating yourself on mental health? Did you go to uh, a certain type of school or was it strictly self-education? Uh, It's been self-education. I have a master's degree in education and uh, and school administration, but really I'm an educator in the therapeutic space, right? So I stay in my lane. I'm not a therapist and and I don't claim to be. It's just that I work with therapists every day as part of a larger team for for students, right? So I don't um, have formal training in it, but I, I... through my own work on myself and through guiding students and working on the clinical teams, basically with hundreds of students over the last five years, have become well-versed in it. Mm-hmm. Now let's go back to being um, a teacher and an assistant principal. What are mm-hmm. some of the lessons you have learned about students and helping students while you were serving students in school? One of the 
one of the big takeaways for me is that, you know, you never know what someone else is going through. Mm -hmm. So, and it's the same way, like I mentioned earlier, in a high school dynamic, and I wish I had known this when I was in high school, right? Because I just assumed that all the popular kids were happy, or I assumed that the kids who were friends were happy. But it's not that way. With every with every family, with every student, there's a story. That doesn't mean you have to give, you have to like just get steamrolled by people. It's important to have boundaries, right? And keep yourself safe. But it's also a great reminder to give grace or to understand that adolescence in high school is a crazy time, especially I think now with the access to 24 hour news cycles and politically polarized country and social media that you're getting so much information and it's impossible to digest the amount of information you're getting in the ratio that you're consuming it. So creating that infrastructure and just allowing yourself to understand that not everyone just because they look well feels well. And Quite honestly, you never want to peak in high school <laughs> is my, you know, I kind of feel like that's a kiss of death. A lot of the kids that I grew up with who peaked in high school and what I mean by peaking, which is like that was the best time of their life, right? If high school is the best time of your life, you're probably not doing something right because, you know, it should be a springboard, a launching pad, an on-ramp to a different life. But if that's the apex of your health wealth and sort of friendships, then we have a problem. Mm -hmm. High school was actually one of the worst times of my life. I was, I experienced a lot of bullying. I don't know if you've heard, but I uh, actually experienced bullying for 15 years, how I spoke. And I remember people laughing at me the first 15 seconds of every presentation, people always mimicking the way I spoke. And then there was a certain time in college where I decided, you know what, I wanted to build my confidence my communication skills. And I think that's what people should be doing, right? Even if they are this popular kid and they feel like they're having uh, really fun in high school, which is nothing wrong with it. But once you get to college and post-college, it's all about developing yourself. Like you said, every single day, every single week, just getting 1% better. Right. And then once you start growing yourself, you're going to realize even you will still experience tough moments in your life. But as you're growing, eventually those tough moments will fade away into better moments in your life. Absolutely. And I'm not here to villainize kids that have friendships and feel great and are doing well in high school. I think I I knew a lot of people um, who did really well in high school who are nice people, Mm -hmm. right? Conversely, I know people in high school who are horrible people, um, who are nice people now, right? Mm -hmm. So it's all about that growth curve and, and allowing yourself to incubate. You know, I, I like the popcorn analogy that all the kernels are popped at this, in the same bag at the same temperature for the same amount of time. And some pop early, some don't pop at all, and some burn, right? So that same with high school and with high school. How do you get teenagers to open up about their mental health? Especially because I know a lot of teenagers don't trust adults. Mm-hmm. Maybe stuff is going on at home or they just see adults as this adult figure and they don't trust open up to them because they are afraid that they'll tell other people Mm -hmm. how do you get them to open up about their problems it's an organic process i mean i'm an educational centered coach so when kids come to me typically it's that school is not going well right and school is the common denominator it's the comfort zone that we can all talk about right so 
families are much more likely to send their student to someone like me than to a therapist because of stigma or whatever ego, whatever you have. And, and likely students, what I've experienced are, would rather talk to me than a therapist simply because of the label. Right. So it's a slow process. I don't get in there and start asking them thousands of questions. Um, And I don't ask them therapeutic questions because I'm not a therapist, but when they start to reveal that they're feeling a certain way, at that point, I, I connect them with the proper resource based on their affect, on their budget, on their, on their prototype, right? So when they do land with someone in the clinical space, more likely than not, it's a good fit. Mm-hmm. So the therapist, like they get you involved and you pretty much talk to them like you are their friend. I don't talk to them like I'm their friend. I talk to them like I'm an advocate and an ally who is 20 years older than them. Mm-hmm. who's gone through a lot of what they've gone through because my story from high school is pretty raw. So I'll share, you know, with clinic, with clinicians, they're not able to share by law. They don't, they have, you know, ethics and boundaries and they don't share about themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to have a one-sided conversation where you feel like you're just being interviewed, but if it's more of a back and forth and I can give them anecdotes of when I experienced something similar or how I worked through a similar problem, then you build trust, right? Because it's not, it's a dialogue, not a monologue. Mm-hmm. So it's more of a conversation. Correct. Between two people talking about mental health. Yeah. And, and not just mental health. It, it's, it's about life in general. As a life coach is what I do with my private clients. It's looking at uh, taking a holistic audit of your life, like personally, professionally, athletically, socially, mentally, all of those things. It's, you know, spokes of a wheel. And mental health is one of those folks that often gets ignored, um, but certainly comes up in conversation through the activities and the processes that I've developed. Mm-hmm. So talk about your two books that you have right now. What inspired you? What are they about? And what inspired you to write them? Sure. Um, I wrote The Assertive Parent in 2018. And that book is essentially a Q&A guideline for all of the questions I was constantly getting from parents as, as, a, as a teacher, as a principal, and then as a private business owner. And so I wanted to have something that was very accessible from a financial perspective to get. And it's kind of like, if this happens, what should I try? And, and knowing that all kids are different, I gave a lot of different, you know, if, if this doesn't work, try that. If this doesn't work, try that. I had been writing before that. I started writing for the Huffington Post and I was writing for the LA Times and I was able to capture a book deal. So I wrote that book in a very traditional sense with a publisher and it came out and it did did well. Then when I started getting into the work I'm doing now as the director of a therapeutic school in college, um, I, I realized there's a huge disconnect between normal school and therapeutic school and from kids that are just getting through life and kids that have resources. And a lot of those parents don't understand. And similarly, schools don't understand how they work together. I wrote it for educators and for parents to understand how to operate the school system and the therapeutic system, like levels of care and types of schools and how to, how to talk to kids and how to talk to parents and how to talk to teachers through an educational lens. And that's been uh, very fascinating and rewarding. And I've had the opportunity to speak at some very large teacher conferences and principal conferences about 
how to have better systems in place to save kids, um, you know, catch them before they fall. Mm -hmm. How can parents talk to their child and vice versa? More of an open communication. Well, if you, if you just posture as a parent the whole time as a coach or as a, as a boss, right. Then, then you, again, you have a very one-sided relationship. You know, I think with parents, sometimes we overcomplicate it. Our rules are so long. They look like a huge scroll, right? So we want very clear, consistent, and simple rules in the home that are very transparent. And if, if this happens, this is what you can expect. And if you do this, this is what you get. Very clear. But also just understanding that not kids aren't one size fits all, right? So I work with parents sometimes they're just all over their kids because they have C's in high school. And I would rather take a student that had all C's as my child, but is happy, healthy, sober, and involved in the community than somebody which what I call wears a 4.0 mask where they have all the accolades and the grades, but they're anxious, they're depressed, and, you know, addicted to drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, that was me. I was um, in high school. I wasn't addicted to drugs and alcohol, but I, I had the 5.2 GPA. I had ran cross country and track, part-time job at the movies, volunteer, leadership positions. I had everything. I got accepted to University of South Florida. And like, you know, I had these all these aspirations. My parents even kept this booklet of all my awards. I had perfect behavior. Tony Robbins has a quote. He says, success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure. And even after all those accolades, I still felt like a failure. When I went into college, now I became completely opposite. I went from this perfect student to now not going to class, always partying. Yeah. It's because I just didn't see a point. And I feel like sometimes that does happen. Absolutely. Because what you do is it's, again, it's the race to nowhere. So Mm -hmm. the same thing happened with me. I mean, I had very good grades, all the accolades and what I, what I, in, in reflection, what I understand is that I realized, okay, well, I did all those things and that didn't work. That didn't bring me fulfillment or joy or happiness. So I'm going to flip the, I'm going to flip this on its back. So I'm going to go full social, full party slacker and, and see those kids seem like they're having a great time. You know, like those kids seem happy. Um, let's go. And it, and it didn't work either. Right. So, you know, again, that was me white knuckling it and trying to solve it all by myself. And, and it didn't take very long once I started doing work, real work, clinical work and making hard decisions and setting good boundaries and giving up things that were no longer good for me and giving up friendships that no longer served me that I felt better. What was your turnaround point? Well, I got sober at 35, I'm 41, but I would say that my turnaround point was before that when in my like early thirties, when my first daughter was born, I was 31. And at that point um, I had been going to therapy regularly, but I really just became committed to becoming a better parent and that helped me. But, you know, obviously if you look at a timeline, like getting sober changed everything and then quitting my job and taking a leap of faith um, took it to the next level. Mm -hmm. And how much, so you've been doing this full time, what, three years now, four years? Four years, yeah. Wow. What what pushed you to go full time? Trauma. I mean, like you go, go, go big or go home. Yeah. Like I didn't want to, I didn't, 
I knew that it was kind of near the job. It felt like if I stayed at the, the high school where my friend died and uh, it was very high pressure job that I would probably lose my sobriety. At the same time, I, there's so many opportunities hidden in plain sight and they began to manifest themselves, um, like getting to write for the Huffington Post and the LA Times and some different magazines and getting on TV and talking about you know, teenagers and mental health, getting speaking gigs. All of a sudden I realized I had kept myself in this container because it was comfortable and safe, um, but it no longer served me. I took a mental health leave for my job and I never went back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you deal with your friend's suicide? Uh, not well at first. Um, it was kind of counterintuitive because all of the coping skills I knew to use, um, I didn't use. I mean, I didn't use drugs or alcohol, so that was a plus. But in terms of like, you know, I became very shut. I shut people out. I didn't want to talk about it. I wasn't ready to deal with it. And then about six months, six months later, I did some intense EMDR work, which is sort of like a hypnosis in the psychological space. It's approved by the American Psychological Association for trauma therapy, and it worked really well for me. Mm-hmm. And then making turning pain into purpose. So understanding that there were no warning signs with him. And again, not to the point where I thought he would take his life anyways, um, that I needed to do something different and get it, get out of like the kind of punitive assistant principal space and, and do something. So I kind of went from a prosecutor to a defense attorney. Mm-hmm. What are some warning signs of people can look out for, for their friends who are struggling with mental health? Well, the, there's a long list, but I think with teenagers, cer- certainly like isolative behavior, cryptic social media posts, which is like kind of attention seeking behavior, mm-hmm. um, promiscuity, like high sexual activity, reckless behavior, like drinking and driving or smoking weed and driving, cheating, disregard for rules, um, also bullying. Um, most bullies seem to have the highest level of mental health, <laughs> health issues, in my opinion, certainly weight gain, weight loss, sleeping lack of school attendance. Those are some things that I look for. Mm-hmm. Now, a couple more questions. What are any last tips you have for someone who is struggling right now? Um, especially with the coronavirus going on, uh, the elections are going on right now. Right. We're still waiting for results. You know, I, the Black Lives uh, Matter movement. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of anxiety filled um, especially right now in 2020 alone. It's crazy. For sure. How can someone deal with it? Any last tips for someone? Yeah, I mean, I it's super overwhelming. And, you know, as a as a white male, right, mm-hmm. I can't I, I can't relate, right? Because the stakes, even though I'm liberal and I'm like very, very invested, at the end of the day, like I, I don't know how it feels, right? And so I can only imagine, and that's not a good picture. And I have friends that are deeply concerned mm-hmm. with the future of the country, like from all walks of life, but specifically like my black educator friends or my trans friends or my LGBT friends, right? Who could lose a lot. And, and imagine if you're, if you're a student watching that compounded on top of any existing mental health issues you already have. So that being said, choose the voices you listen to, right? You are an average of the five people you surround yourself with. So when you're looking you have to control the intake of information. I'm not saying be ignorant, but I'm saying set boundaries. Um, and also, you need to give yourself room to control what you can control. 
Like you can control your diet. You can control your exercise. You can control what you look at on social media. You can control who you confide in. So if you can give yourself some small wins to just keep going another day. Because when I was in high school, I didn't want to go another day. You know, I was like, if I'm out of here, I'm out of here. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Um, But, and then I look at me now and I'm like, well, man, if I had thrown in the towel at 16, I wouldn't live this life and be able to do the work that I do. Mm-hmm. So in, in AA, which I attend, you know, it's one day at a time. And there's a reason that we say that because every day is a new day, you know, and you, not all days are going to be good. Sometimes good enough is just getting through it. Just get through it. You have a whole life ahead of you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Daniel, what does resiliency mean to you? Well, I think resilience is a it, as a word is, is very trendy, but you know, grit, I think is, is a term I, I use more than resilience, but you know, just being able to carve out enough mental energy and physical energy just to get to the next day. Okay. Um, for me. And, and sometimes that means drastic measures like quitting a job like I did. Um, and sometimes that means just look, this friendship's very toxic. I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to get off social media for 10 days and, and take a break. Right. So it's just that kind of being stubborn enough to know that you deserve, despite what people might be telling you or what you, you know, the voices in your, in, in your like psyche are telling you that you do deserve to go another day and you just need to keep going. Mm-hmm. Where can people find you? They can find me on Instagram, Patterson Perspective, or um, my website, pattersonperspective.com. Um, those are the two places I hang out the most. <laughs> but yeah. That's where you can connect with me. Great. Uh, thank you so much, Daniel. Absolutely. Thank you. Being on this podcast. And for anyone that's listening for the first time, you can also connect with me on Instagram too, at Shlomo Salsen. Connect with both of us. Uh, We both have some inspirational content and provide a lot of value for our followers. Uh, Thank you so much, Daniel. Absolutely. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Yeah. Okay. All right. Take care. Enjoy.